Hey everybody, what's up? It's Trent McClellan here with uh, another episode of the Generators Podcast, episode 60. Boom, we did it. Got to the big 6-0. We should have a parade or something or some kind of uh, acknowledgement of the big 6-0 of the senior citizen of podcast numbers. Hope you're doing good out there in the world. Um doing this again from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada, Earth. And um, yeah, I hope you're well and you're safe and uh, everyone in your world is doing well. I'm doing pretty good. We had a little bit of a hiatus here with 22 minutes and uh, we go back to work this week after having a few days off, which I think was much needed by everybody with the new uh, new way of doing things, I think has been stressful for everybody and it's a little bit Everything is extra work. Everything we do takes more time, takes extra effort. And uh, I think uh, people needed that break to kind of recharge. So I think uh, it was it was much welcomed. Um, but I didn't have all the time off because I was part of the Halifax Comedy Festival. Did two shows on Friday over at the uh, Seahorse Tavern and uh, the Marquee, I guess, upstairs from that place. And uh, I gotta be honest, I felt a little rusty because I hadn't really done a whole lot of sets since I'd been in Halifax. Did maybe two shows, uh, two uh, quick sets as warm up sets beforehand, and then had to kind of figure out what I was going to do for my two separate seven minute sets. And the deal was, they uh, when you do these festivals that are going to be televised for television, they don't want you to have, you know, done the material before on TV anywhere. So I was kind of going through all my newer stuff and figuring out what I could do. And the first set, I felt okay. Felt it went all right. Second set, I felt way better and more like myself and kind of got the hang of the venue and, and the space and stuff. So it felt way better. So uh, big thanks to everyone involved at the Halifax Comedy Festival. It was their 25th anniversary, believe it or not, uh, which is huge. A lot of comedy festivals don't get past year one or two. And to do it for 25 years is a pretty impressive feat. So congrats to... Everyone involved with the festival, uh, Kim, Christina, Jeff, um, Maya, everyone that puts that thing together, Michelle, they do a great job, work really, really hard, fantastic crew this year and the stuff they went through to make sure uh, the festival could go ahead in some capacity, far more scaled down this year, obviously, due to the uh, the new world we're living in. But uh, it was it was still really, really great to be a part of it and have a chance to get back on stage and and hear laughter again. Um you know, man, it's amazing when you, you go to these comedy festivals here in Canada and you run into comics you've known for a long time. And the thing about being a stand-up comedian is quite often you you don't see these comedians as much anymore because you live in different parts of the country. Um, you're not in the same venues at the same time, obviously. And... This year, more than ever, I felt like when I was looking around the room and seeing all the faces that were there, and most of them were comics I've known for a long, long time, there was a real sense of, um, a real sense of all these people have survived and made it. And I don't mean in terms of fame or anything like that. I just mean when you go off on an artistic journey, and you're going to create for a living. It's really, really hard and tough. And there are a lot of dark times. And 
a lot of very, very talented people drop out of the game because they just can't do it anymore. And uh, it will kick you in the guts. It will, uh, it will test everything in your life, every single thing in your life. And so when I looked around the room this year, it just kind of occurred to me like every single person in this room has just stuck with it when they wanted to quit, when they wanted to throw in the towel, they're just people who have all faced, you know, different shapes and size of adversity, I'm sure in their own lives and their own careers, but they have all persevered. You know, Ron James was, you know, closing out the show it was Ron James. who has been God doing comedy for what? Four decades, five decades, perhaps. Still doing it, still razor sharp. And, um, you know, got to catch up with Shama Jundar, my friend, and former cast made here at 22 Minutes. Um, Mark Critch was there. Kathy Jones was there. John Sheehan. Um, Travis Lindsay was there. Matt Wright. Um, um, Adam DeLore. So many great comics. You know, Nikki Payne and a few others I'm sure I'm forgetting. But just incredible talent. But but the common thread amongst all of them was I just remember realizing like every single one of them have just fought to kind of stay in the game. And that's what it's about. And uh, if you're out there, you're a creative, you're a musician, you're a songwriter, you're a filmmaker, anybody in the creative, you know, scene in the artistic scene, it literally is just a, a battle, just a war of attrition. Just how much can you take and how much can you keep moving your feet and uh, keep going. And I know this might sound somewhat, you know, I don't know, um, kind of fluffy and, you know, I'm not trying to be overly motivational here, but I just, just occurred to me when you go through what the world has gone through in this past year and you look at our professions as comedians and the fact that it was kind of just taken away to a large extent with venues shutting down and no shows going on and, and you realize how quickly it could all end. Um, yeah, I just had this overwhelming sense of, of the fight that it takes to, to stay in the game and to keep being able to do this and being resourceful enough and resilient enough to make a living, you know, being funny. It's, it is a grind. And uh, so hats off to every single person that uh, that is still doing it out there in the world, whether you're going to festivals or not, whether you are playing shows right now or not. Just keep going. Just keep investing in yourself. Keep believing in yourself. Um, don't be afraid to evolve and grow and change and learn and do things differently if you need to. Um, but uh, you, you just got to keep moving your feet and keep going. So. Uh, that was the big lesson for me. And just a reminder. I've always known it, but it was just a, a big reminder for me. All right. Enough of that. Let's change gears and set up our guests uh, this week. Uh, well, the elephant in the room, of course, for all of us is COVID-19. And it, it's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, you go on social media and you see lots of Articles on this, and what do we think of this? And this is what I think. And some folks think it's a sham, and some people think it's government controlled, and some people think it's legit, and you know, every other notion in between all those polls. 
So I decided to talk to um, an infectious disease expert. So I was able to get in touch with Dr. Abdu Sharkawi, who is a uh, an expert working in Toronto, uh, dealing with COVID patients every single day, was gracious enough to give uh, me a bunch of his time. And I wanted to ask some straightforward questions about this thing. And what are some myths? What are some truths about it? And what his message is? So um, I'll be honest with you up front, not a whole lot of comedy in this one. This one is fairly serious, but I felt like um, it's something that I wanted to address on the podcast in some way. And I felt who better to talk to than someone who is living on the front lines with this thing every single day and what he sees and um, his kind of expert analysis of, of where we are in Canada right now with this thing and uh, what the future looks like. So it's an important episode. I hope you get a bunch out of it. I hope it answers some questions for you as well. And uh, yeah, so sit back and listen to my interview with Dr. Abdu Sharkawi. All right, joined by Dr. Abdu Sharkawi. How are you today, sir? I'm great. I'm on the right side of the bed. So every day I'm on the right side of the bed is, is a good day. Thanks for having me, Trent. No worries. I appreciate that. Um, thank you. Thanks for your time. I'm saying there's no busier person in Canada, I would imagine, at the moment than uh, someone like yourself. How are things currently at the hospital? What is the situation? Uh, you, you know, it's sort of like reliving um, what we went through a, a bit in the first wave. Um, you know, there's a, a sense of angst that's certainly starting to percolate a little bit more. Um, you know, we have the confidence and that sense of um, security of knowing what we're, we're up against on the one hand. But, uh, you know, things are a little different this time around because we know that it's potentially going to be worse. It's harder for people to stay outdoors. It's harder for people to avoid distancing. You've got that sort of pandemic fatigue that's starting to set in and frustration with a lot of people. And, you know, we've got that ugly thing called the flu, which, you know, resurfaces pretty much every year around this time. It gives us a pretty stressful winter um, when you're in the hospital you know, on a yearly basis. So it's a little bit of, a, you know, an angst ridden time, certainly. Um, but we're doing what we can. We're trying to stay resilient. We're trying to stay focused and uh, hopefully take care of ourselves so that we get through this the best way possible. I hear you. So when I arrived here in Halifax, I live in Calgary the other six months of the year. So I arrive in uh, in Halifax to do to do our show. And they're like, Trinity, you have to go straight to quarantine. And I'm like, all right, I have to do two weeks. A man can do a lot of thinking in a condo by himself for two weeks. <laughs> and uh, I, get, I get here. I had some workout gear. You can probably see behind me. I'm like, I need to do stuff to kind of keep my mind sharp. Um, and we did a sketch called the Atlantic Bubble Song, basically. So it, went, it had two million views. It was a song about, you know, people not we don't want people coming here because it's whatever anyway it divided people because folks were kind of like oh it's fine for you and you don't want our tourism dollars but it seems like bubbles work like the vibe here in atlantic canada you can move within all four provinces um what are your thoughts on bubbles as as a concept and do you think maybe some of the countries should have gone to that that concept uh before 
you know, bubbles are a very intriguing concept. You know, I, I had a problem with the concept of bubbles in terms of, I think, the, the somewhat arbitrary limit that we were placing on the number of people. And, and I, I think the problem with that is once you fixate on a hard number, for, um, I, I think human nature is such that you're going to bend the rules. So you say five is okay. Well, what's the difference between five and eight? Or you say 25 is okay. Well, what's the difference between 25 and 40? And the problem is... It's It's like me eating potato chips. It's the same thing. It's like I can have 40 chips. Maybe I should only have 10. That's the thing. I finished the bag. I'm I'm kind of a little bit more, uh, I don't know if you want to call it dogmatic or or maybe a little bit more uh, of a focused, principled, you know, viewer of the situation when it comes to this. And, uh, you know, I, I say look at it the other way. You can... You know, you can't be half pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. So, you know, my philosophy has been, you know, don't focus on the numbers. Just reduce your exposure to everybody that you can within reason. And that means that, you know, socializing is going to have to change for a while. So your birthday parties are going to have to change. They're not going to be the same way they used to. You can't get together with the boys anymore and hang out for drinks on on a Tuesday night. You can't get together and, and have dinner with your girlfriends, you know, the same way that you used to, because it seems like it's OK, because it's not. We're mm-hmm. living in the midst of a really bizarre, unusual situation that has affected the entire world. It's surreal, but it's real. It's right. happening. And ultimately, we're really responsible for perpetuating it in our behavior. And I get it. A lot of people are pissed off at the government. They're angry that things haven't been done properly with respect to reparations because people can't pay their rent. You know, a lot of people have suffered because of things not being where they should be. And I get that. But at the end of the day, you've got to make some difficult decisions for yourself. You've got to determine what is actually important. What's essential? What can you live without? And too many of us have kind of gone through this saying, well, this doesn't really apply to me. You know, eh, you know, that's something that happens to somebody else. It's that same idea that you don't really get it until it happens to you. And let me tell you, I've got close friends. I've got, you know, members of not my immediate family, but my extended family who've had this. I've got colleagues in my own hospital who've suffered from this. This is real, man. Like when, you know, the orange man, the the, the leader of the free world, so to speak, ends up with this and it's running rampant through, you know, his inner circle. What's left? Number one ranked tennis player in the world. Fastest runner in the world. You know, like go through the list. Nobody's immune to this. It can affect all of us. And ultimately, it's got nothing to do necessarily with our resources, on a certain level, it has to do with our decision-making and mm-hmm. our behavior. And, you know, I applaud the people in Eastern Canada for doing what they've done. They bought in. They bought in as a collective community. And when you do that, you make it about everyone, not just about yourself. It works. It's not a mystery. And people go on and they say, oh, man, you're going to destroy the economy. You're going to ruin lives. Okay, Please tell me how the economy has been destroyed in New Zealand. It hasn't been. Right. Please take a look at South Korea 
and parts of Southeast Asia and even China where this all started. Has their economy been destroyed? I don't think so. Have a look at Germany, which is doing way better than everywhere else in Europe when you compare things on a per capita basis. No. What's the common thread here? The common thread is people didn't put up their hands and resist and say that somehow the rules don't apply to them. They listened. They listened to the public health guidance. And some can argue that it's totalitarian when you're talking about China. People are having their civil liberties, you know, removed. You can go on and on. But, you know, people didn't go through totalitarianism in New Zealand. What mm. they did was they heard convincing, solid public health messaging from a firm but compassionate leader. And they listened and they followed through and it worked. And the suffering was relatively short lived. You're not going to get away with no suffering at all. Right. The suffering is going to be much more short lived. And that's the key. I think everybody keeps looking for the escape hatch here. There is none. There is none. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better if we keep trying to find a shortcut. There's no way you're going to have a healthy economy and a healthy society that's going to sustain their way through this. If you keep looking for exceptions to the rule, if you keep looking for an escape hatch, it ain't there. And I wish we would just learn our lesson and dig in and say, yes, we can do this. We don't have to have millions of people out of work, millions of people becoming homeless, millions of people you know, becoming more depressed and socially isolated and alienated when they already were before the pandemic. We've got to just make ourselves accountable to each other and dig in. And I, I really hope that what they do in New Zealand and in Germany and in Atlantic Canada translates into what other people can see here. No, it's not a coincidence. It works. So let's do it, Canada. Let's do it. Let's make this happen. Gotcha. Um, One of the things I wonder about, too, is that is this the perfect storm in terms of you have Donald Trump pushing what he's been pushing down there, continuing to do rallies and and, you know, where we give out masks and if they wear them, they wear them, this whole nonchalant attitude. But also this uh, trend over the last, I'd say, number of decades of people feeling as though they are experts. So it's like, you I'm sure you've seen it as a doctor many times, the people Googled their symptoms and now they have self-diagnosed that they are A, B, or C. And it's this perfect storm kind of all coming at the same time. Do you, do you see that as if people thinking, oh, I don't need to listen to a medical expert. I don't need to listen to health officials. I've done some Google research and here's what I've decided. Do you think it's a product of that? Oh, boy. Like, you know, I mean, this was a big problem before the pandemic. You know, the the availability of, um, you know, social media and communication avenues to disseminate information. You know, it's unbelievable. It's incredible how rampant the pace of translation of different viewpoints occurs from one end of the globe to the other. And you know, it's very easy for something to, to take on a viral quality to it, you know, pun intended here, yep. and people to rally behind it because it helps validate their viewpoints of what sort of agenda, uh, what sort of philosophy they want to espouse. And, and let me tell you, boy, it is absolutely astonishing and scary what can, can happen 
And there's no question. I mean, this pandemic has probably tested, you know, the, the credibility, the veracity of information sharing, probably like nothing else has in the last hundred years. It literally affects pretty much every aspect of our lives. And you've got people who've become epidemiologists overnight, <laughs> get people even within the medical field who don't really have much training in infectious disease or microbiology or epidemiology touting their own viewpoints, mainly maybe to further political agendas, to further their own particular personal views on you know economic value as opposed to you know, health and the human condition, um, you know, th that's been a disheartening thing to see even members of the medical community falling prey to, um, you know, not very credible, very evidence-based views and sharing that. And I think that's been tremendously damaging. I think it's undermined public trust in truth uh, when it comes to, to, to science and evidence. It's fueling the anti-vaccine movement, which was already a very serious threat prior to the pandemic. Um, it's created this sort of nihilism uh, where you see people trying to essentially refute facts and, and, and not allowing it to, to become their reality. Um, and boy, when you have somebody like Donald Trump who just decides something is fake news, um, no matter what the evidence is staring him in the face, got a pretty pretty good and pretty effective poster uh, for, for that kind of attitude to be shared widely. So, you know, this is something that is going to need tremendous amounts of resilience. Um, it needs a lot of awareness and pushback, uh, I think, from, from everybody who happens to have knowledge and skill set in, in, in any domain. Um, you can't underestimate it. Uh, it's, it's, it's a growing concern all over the world, um, and it's something that we just cannot uh, allow to, to uh, fester and, and to continue to grow um, unchallenged. Yeah. Um, OK, so two questions for you. Where is Canada right now with regards to testing, in your opinion, and how far away or how far away are we from a legitimate vaccine that could be readily available to the general public? So in, in terms of testing, we're unfortunately not where we should be. Um, you know, if you want me to give you sort of a, a frame of reference to look at, you know, in, in the first wave, you know, we weren't doing many more than around, you know, uh, you know, 25,000 tests per day, um, you know, in uh, parts of Ontario, in, in Ontario, for example, the most populous province uh, in, in Canada. Um, and we knew that the second wave was going to be potentially worse in terms of case numbers. And we had set a target from somewhere between 50 to 100,000 cases per day. We haven't even come close to that. We've come to around 48,000 cases intermittently uh, over the last few weeks. And over the last two to three weeks in particular, that number hasn't even come anywhere close to that target. And so this is a big problem. If you can't test enough people, you don't really know what the full extent of the disease is out there. And you can't really guide public health policy to determine what's an appropriate reaction. Right. Do you need to impose restrictive measures that are this far and this far reaching? And for how long? 
how do you know that if you don't know what you're dealing with? And that's further, you know, complicated by the fact that we don't have the contact tracing. So great. You've got like, unfortunately, a thousand new cases plus that we had in Ontario yesterday. Well, where are they exactly? Where are the hotspots specifically within a given community so that you can actually trace the origins and say, there's a link between this cluster of cases and we've got to attack it in this neighborhood. We don't have that mechanism functioning right now. So we're kind of flying blind. And, and, and the problem with that is you end up with blunt instruments being imposed on people who don't necessarily deserve the losses that are happening from that. When you talk about, you know, indoor dining, for example, uh, you know, entrepreneurs, small business owners who to no fault of their own are probably following the rules, limiting the capacity of patrons that are in their establishments, abiding by whatever that they can. But at some point, if you can't tell me exactly what neighborhood and what streets the virus is percolating through more quickly, you're left with these blunter instruments where you have to impose broader restrictions and say, okay, I'm going to have to hit gyms, I'm going to have to hit indoor, you know, dining, restaurants, bars, etc. Because at least we know that that's the kind of environment that statistically over time is going to be conducive to spreading this virus. It may be very unfair to the individual proprietors, But overall, what are you left with? You have no other choice when you're stuck in this sort of a crisis situation and the finer instruments and the finer tools to target where the disease is coming from are not available. That's the real problem that I have and the real angst that I feel right now in Canada is we're not where we should be in that in, in that side of monitoring and identifying where this disease is. And a lot of people are suffering. I feel terrible here for small business owners. I get, you know, angry emails from them, you know, telling me how I'm, you know, somehow responsible for making their livelihoods, uh, you know, disappear because I'm, I'm supportive of, of some of these broader restrictions that are being imposed, you know, and, and I get it, you know, I, I don't love being called names, but I understand the predicament that they're in, what, what this means to their livelihoods, their families, their mental health, you know, it's not great, but the answer you know, is getting back to the fundamentals. You know, some of that's going to be on our policymakers, on our governments to help us with the testing and tracing, you know, etc. Some of that's up to us. You know, you can't get together with your cousins and your closest friends on Thanksgiving and then complain, you know, a week and a half later that you can't keep your business open or, you know, that you can't do a lot of the other things that make your mental health and physical health better than they should be because the gym is closed and you can't hang out at the bar or you can't work with the same level of freedom that you did before this. You've got to be accountable. Um, Your second question was on the vaccines. Uh, vaccines are still a very promising uh, opportunity for us to to look forward to. Um, you know, there's close to 50 vaccines that are, uh, you know, into an advanced stage of clinical trials right now. Uh, there's at least 10 that look like they're going to be very credible in terms of their safety and efficacy that are probably going to be available 
in 2021. Um, now, the problem is availability is not something that happens across the board uniformly. The availability is going to have to be determined based on number one, areas that are most heavily affected. So, so developing nations, um, places uh, that are harder hit, for example, the United States, Brazil, you know, India, you know, those countries obviously deserve to have the vaccine um, earlier than, you know, parts of Scandinavia, for example, that have done a better job. Um, that's just a, a, a function uh, of, of equity, you know, that, that can't be dismissed here. Um, and then even within the so-called have countries, if we're talking about parts of the Western world here in Canada, for example, um, it's going to be long-term care facility residents, um, people whose immune system is compromised, you know, people who work in congregate environments um, like processing plants, factories, um, you know, long-term care facilities, healthcare workers like myself, you know, um, we're going to be the first tier recipients of a vaccine um, much more, uh, you know, m much sooner than, than, you know, the average person who just needs the vaccine and doesn't have a high risk category attached to them. So in right. a timeline sense, you're, you're looking at probably, you know, summer of 2021 uh, for probably uh, average people, uh, potentially, um, you know, the fall. We're, we're looking a year from now, um, which you know, probably has a lot of people huffing and puffing and, and, and feeling fairly demoralized. But it, it gets back to the principles of how we can control this virus. Not impossible. They yeah. don't have a vaccine in New Zealand. They yeah. don't have one in the Atlantic bubble where you are right now. They don't have it in many parts of the world, but they're doing it on grit doing it on tenacity, commitment uh, to, to social accountability, um, good public health adherence, you know, and just simplifying life, man. You know, yeah. like, I, I don't think people in New Zealand are living an awful quality of life. You know, right. they, they've simplified their lives. Um, and, and I think where we really stand to gain benefit from this pandemic and where I think we need to turn the corners, I think we have to completely change our lens. We've got to, I think, move on from looking at everything we don't have, looking at everything we've been deprived of, everything we've forsaken and sacrificed and say, we've got to turn this around and we've got to look at how we can make this a better opportunity to reflect on how we can learn more about ourselves. You know, a lot of us have been humbled like you wouldn't believe by what's happened. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to, you know, you know, speak from from a, a place of privilege here, not cognizant of the fact that a lot of people have been dealt a really hard blow by this. So it's very easy for me to just stand here and say, you know, you've got to look at the cup being half full rather than half empty. Right. But there's a lot of people who can. There's yeah. a lot of people who can, I think, adjust their lens and say, what can I do to focus on the things that really matter the most in terms of my relationships with people, in terms of taking better care of my physical and mental health by avoiding a lot of the things that probably weren't good habits, you yeah. know, whether it's, you know, consumerism, you know, that was rampant or spending more time than I needed to with 
maybe social bonds and connections that maybe weren't prioritized the way they should be. Yep. You know, let's look at that more carefully. Let's try and be a little bit more introspective and reflective right now. And I'm not saying that's easy. You know, I really don't want to come across as being patronizing when I say that, because I know people will say it's pretty easy for you, but it's not easy for me. You know, I've gone through a lot. A lot of healthcare workers have gone through an enormous amount. So it's not easy for me, but it's been an opportunity to say, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing with my life? How, how much has my lens been sharpened by going through changing the way I communicate, by changing what I can and can't expect on a daily basis. I would say that if enough people did that, I think it would change the energy in the room. I think it would change our ability to kind of maybe have a bit more motivation and strength to deal with what's probably gonna be with us for a long time, maybe another year or two where our lives are nowhere near what they were, prior to December, 2019, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. um, that's going to take a lot of soul searching, but, but it's there. I, I, I really I think that if enough of us, you know, dig inside of ourselves, we can find something good and, and, and we can find some amazing opportunities to share some great life lessons with each other. I, I don't, I know I that sounds hokey, but no, no, I agree. I, I, when I, really I think it's real. I think when the, when the, um, quarantining first started when COVID hit, we're talking like, you know, late February, early March, mid-March. Um, that's kind of one of the things that I did was kind of just go inside more. So you kind of audit your life and you audit your decisions and your relationships and what you're doing and what you're not doing. And you actually start to question why you do the things you do because we're moving at such a clip all the time. You know, we don't ever stop to pause and go, what am I doing with my life? And how is that friendship? And how is my relationship with my, you know, whoever? And I think you're right. If you can use this and flip it and use this time in a positive way, then that's something that helps you get through this. And you focus on what you do have as opposed to what you don't have. And, um, you know, that gets into mindfulness and gets into meditation, something that I started about five, six years ago. I almost feel like I was training for a marathon and this was the marathon. I didn't know when the marathon was coming. Great practice, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it really is. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up that metaphor and and sorry to cut you off. I don't want to lose that thought there because I just, I think it's so compelling and so important. And, And I've kind of likened the pandemic, not just to a marathon, but to a tug of war for you know, and the reason I think about that is a tug of war is it's 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 truly a battle between opposing sides where it's not just important to tug, but it's important for everybody to tug. It's important for everybody to dig in their heels and to make sure that you're giving it what you should. You know, you can borrow every sports analogy under the sun. It takes 20 guys, you know, yeah. on any given night on a hockey team or yeah. you know, whatever. It takes a 48 minutes of playing basketball or four quarters or whatever. But this applies more to this than anywhere else because the truth is, if we're not all doing our share, if we've got, you know, only a small percentage of the people doing that heavy pulling, you know, maintaining the torque on the rope, you know, they're going to tire out yeah. at some point. They need you. They need everybody else to pick up the slack to make sure that they're doing their part as well, because 
if you don't, the rope starts going back the other way and it starts fraying a little bit. Those mm-hmm. consequences of the rope fraying, you know, it's the friction of, of you know, the haves not having the resources at some point to help the have-nots and the have-nots not having that much to begin with. We've got to support each other so that each person does their proportional amount whatever their resources can can give them to pull on that rope you know and you know even if even if if it's the few that are talking too hard you know and they have to tug harder than they can well you fall over yeah even if you win you fall over and that comes with with the harm that comes along with falling over you don't want to fall over you just want to pull the rope over to the other side yeah and win so that balance i think is really necessary i i feel like if we all knew what we could do you know recognized what we can't being honest about that but recognize what we can do and truly assigning ourselves the priority of doing that we can get through it the problem is you've got too many people even if they're a minority who somehow don't feel like that applies to them whether you're right. talking about younger people who feel invincible or apathetic or somewhat indifferent to this and have tuned out the message, you know, that's a dangerous thing. That's yeah. what really worries me because that's the breeding ground for how the rope is going to start going back the other way. Yeah. You know, we, we need the young, the strong, you know, the resource heavy, um, the, the, the equipped, you know, to help pull along with with the weak, the frail, the elderly, you know, the disenfranchised, you know, marginalized, you know, we need each other's help, man. You know, Uh, know. the the, the kids that are hanging out, you know, having college parties on the weekend or doing rallies, you know, man, you know, that spells trouble for for grandmothers and grandpas and people in nursing homes, you know, and, and people living in subsidized housing. You know, in 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 the wrong side of 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 the city, um, and this is really taxing our social contract like we've never seen before. I hear you. I hear you. One of the things I want to pivot to, um, you kind of brought it up about the the toll this has taken on on frontline workers. And um, an ex-girlfriend of mine many, many years ago was a palliative care nurse. And one of the things that they had set up was a peer counseling situation, because I honestly feel like even in entertainment, which is something totally different, obviously, but like only people who are in what I'm in can relate to what I go through on a day to day basis. And so to be able to connect with those people and talk about those struggles, um, there's a there's a real lift to that and there's a real connection to that. And I wonder for you guys on the front line, how are people managing when you go in day to day, especially when things get very, very stressful? um, How do people take care of themselves in that in that uh, in that environment? Yeah, you know, th- thanks for asking. It's 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 not something that I think a lot of people um, really have a good understanding of or much insight into. Um, I think the hardest part of this for frontline healthcare workers like myself is um, this is kind of an all-encompassing experience. Um, you know, as much as everyone who's not working in a healthcare capacity has to deal with this in their own lives. You know, we're living it kind of 24-7 because we can't forget about it when we go to work. We're literally in the eye of the storm when we go to work. And when we're at work, we're still preoccupied about our kids and our spouses and our parents and our, you know, friends, um, people that we care about. 
And when we go home, um, you know, we pick up where we left off in terms of being everyday moms and dads and partners. And I think that's the hardest thing. I think that's probably what makes this more uniquely challenging than probably anything else we've ever gone through. Um, you know, where do we find our strength? Uh, a lot of places. Um, you know, uh, I think we, we, we lean on each other a lot. Um, you know, when we, we when I did the COVID ward um, through much of the spring, um, you know, we had a lot of black humor, um, a lot of very inappropriate jokes that probably people would shudder to hear, right. <laughs> you know, um, in, in the healthcare field. Just, just to get you through, yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, that was the sort of, you know, off the cuff, uh, you know, uh, you know, antics that, that that helped us get through the day um, yeah. is is just doing what you can to, to to try and almost disembody yourself from the experience because it's hugely draining from an emotional standpoint, um, from from a physical standpoint. If if you're in it, you know, twenty four seven, you you burn out, you know, and um, you know, colleagues have gotten sick. Uh, colleagues have gotten very tired. Um, they, they've had mental health issues uh, that have stemmed from from being overworked. Um, and you know, we're literally the the, the front line, um, and we're kind of the the last line of defense, if you will, too. Like if you know, if if we go down, then what happens? You know, we're the goalies. So right. if there's an empty net. You know, good luck. And you know, People there's not blaming the goalie. People not two love minutes left the of the game, right? Like yes, we might right. have a second and third period left here <laughs> right. without so, the goalie. So it's in a few overtimes, yeah. Game, you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah, you know, we lean on each other a lot. Uh, we, we, you know, there's a lot of hallway chats um, with with colleagues. Um, there's a lot of formal, you know, programs that are in place. But I got to be honest with you, I don't know that a lot of us utilize them just because uh, we don't really have a lot of time to invest ourselves in something formally. Right. We're doing the best that we can um, outside of it, whether it's meditation, you know, my wife has gotten me into yoga and whatnot. And I, I love to run and, you know, I'm a big team sports player and unfortunately that's gone by the wayside. So I'm, right. uh, I'm still playing uh, basketball in my backyard with, with my kids uh, to try and stay loose Um you know, and and it's just trying to make sure we don't we don't forget uh, yeah. that we need to take care of ourselves. But I'll tell you, it's a chore, yeah, um, and it's been man. harder than anything that I've ever been through in uh, in my career, in, including SARS. Just because you know SARS was far more contained to a certain extent, it was almost predictable, and it looked like there was an end in sight, and eventually there was. Right. There's just so many uncertainties and unknowns here with with this. It's just it's it's massive in terms of the drain that it puts on you yeah i'm sure um so one of the arguments folks are making is herd immunity and you know what this thing is going to run its course and we'll just the human body will adapt to it and we'll just move on what's the big deal so what do you say to those people well the simple response to that is please show me the evidence. Um, you know, uh, I, I would love nothing more than to go on with life, to uh, shelter the most vulnerable members of our community, um, you know, to isolate them, uh, keep them out of harm's way, but allow 
business and industry and able-bodied members of our community to function and to allow our society to prosper. But guess what? That's a load of BS. And it's been proven. And it's been proven in front of us with the Swedish uh, story that has been an unmitigated disaster um, where they tried to shelter. Um, they didn't do a very good job of sheltering their older population who died in record numbers compared to everywhere else in Scandinavia. Uh, and Sweden ended up having one of the highest mortality rates per million of any any country in the world, never mind a developed country, um, and a GDP loss that was pretty bad on top of that. So please help me understand and convince me that this was a good strategy to use. Um, We've seen this, you know, time and time again. We've seen very astute, um, respected, uh, competent, uh, you know, Uh, uh, experts in epidemiology who've done the modeling, both retrospectively and prospectively, based on the characteristics of this virus, how it spreads, you know, etc. And it all points to this being a fallacious formula. And it is one that is doomed to cause losses on both sides of the spectrum. You cannot shelter elderly people and those that are most vulnerable and marginalized long enough to achieve herd immunity, you essentially uh, invite more of these people to die because you just can't do it long enough uh, and and, and allow for them to stay out of harm's way uh, from the virus infiltrating from other parts of the community. We've learned that economic losses will follow because invariably enough people become sick that they can't shop and they can't be part of the workforce and they can't invest and allow trade to flourish in a way that it should. So the economic argument is completely hollow here as well. And let's focus on herd immunity itself. Where is it? Try and convince me that it exists because we've done enough seroprevalence studies all over the world to show that there's not enough immunity in places that still have the virus traveling and circulating amongst different segments of the society. It didn't happen. You know, and we're seeing cases, albeit isolated ones, that show that people are becoming reinfected. Where's the herd immunity helping people here who've actually recovered from the virus completely and they're now infected with a new strain. So when you look at all the arguments for herd immunity, they're meaningless. They're absolutely groundless and they are detrimental to any hope of keeping more people alive, keeping more people safe, or ironically enough, making your economy one that is strong, healthy, sustainable, and can recover. And all of the so-called experts who have, you know, penned their names behind documents like the Great Barrington Declaration, my goodness, I call that the great big deception. That's what GBD should stand for. You know, they're uh, extremists who are climate change denialists. Um, They are people whose uh, views are clearly not aligned with actual science, with credible data, um, with anything else that I think most reasonably minded uh, people who will want to critically appraise a situation fairly would agree with. So, you know, I don't think that sort of narrative is going to go away. 
because I think people want to fit square pegs into round holes because it doesn't suit their viewpoint of how their lives should somehow be compromised by this. Right. They value their own financial flexibility and their own um, sense of convenience um, over uh, other people's lives, quite frankly. Um, it may be a minority within our society of those who are marginalized and, and vulnerable. Last time I checked, a life is a life. And your life isn't worth any more than someone else's um, just because you have more resources to enjoy it. You know, I'd argue the contrary, you know, quite frankly. Yeah. You know, there's enough inequity and inequality in this world to begin with. Um, Certainly not going to stand behind anything that uh, I think shamelessly allows that sort of thing to be perpetuated. And I think you know, the great Barrington declaration and all of these narratives do nothing more than perpetuate that attitude. I I quite frankly find it sickening. Okay. So to wrap this up, we, uh, you know, what do you want to drill home to people right now when folks are, you know, I'm, I'm here in Atlantic Canada. Uh, we have the bubble. We feel a certain amount of safety and security within that, but also that can create a false sense of security. And I think you're right. There has been a little bit of fatigue from people all over the country in terms of how much longer do I have to do this stuff? And I got to do that thing again. I'm sure all the guys can come over to the house and watch the game tonight. What's the big deal? What are the things right now that you want to hammer home to people who are listening and watching and say, these things are non-negotiable. Well, I, th- I think there's maybe a few messages that need to be imparted here that can't really be undersold. The first message is squarely put at people under the age of 40. Um, and, and why do I single them out? Um, I single them out because, number one, I do appreciate the fact that a lot of younger people have been affected a lot more from this pandemic than maybe some other people want to appreciate or acknowledge. I understand a lot of younger people have lost their jobs, that because they are by nature more social beings, you know, that sense of isolation has affected them in a way that may not affect others. So so I want to first validate that and and make it clear that not everybody who's over the age of 40 is painting everyone under the age of 40 with the same brush of being reckless, you know, indifferent, apathetic. I I think that's important, number one, just out of a sense of compassion and, and respect. That needs to be identified so that I think we can engage each other and hope that we can buy some goodwill from one another that is sorely needed. But I want to tell those people in the same breath that that if you continue to buy in to the philosophy that this can't affect you, it won't affect you, it's not a big deal, you're playing with fire. I'm looking at you and I'm telling you that I've seen people who are 20 the 35 years of age whose lives will never be the same again because they've gone through COVID-19 and they've never recovered. 
they have chronic headaches. They can't concentrate anymore. They have chronic chest pain. Their exercise tolerance isn't what they used to enjoy. So they can't enjoy competitive sports or even walk briskly anymore. Um, they've lost their sense of smell permanently. So eating is something that's not what it used to be. Um, I've seen young people end up on dialysis um, because their kidneys have failed, strokes. Um, these are people who've never had anything wrong with them in their lives, okay? They're not diabetics. They don't suffer from anything that requires prescription medication, and their lives will never be the same again. Do you know if you're going to be that person? Can you prove it? Can you tell me that you're not going to be that person? Because you can't. And if you can't, then you better do whatever the hell you can to avoid inviting this virus into your circle, into your group of friends, into your home, into your workplace, anywhere else. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Let me flip that around. What can we do? We've been talking about how scary this is, how, you know, you know, why it's so bad. You know, there's a lot of things we can do that just make our lives simple. You know, people have been complaining about not being able to go to the gym. I'll tell you, I've been lobbying and advocating heavily to change our policy in gyms across Canada to allow gyms to open and to make masks mandatory. I've worked out in a mask. I've done it. It can be done. It's not easy, but it can be done safely. We've got to look for opportunities to make sure that we can get what we can without putting ourselves at risk or putting others at risk. We need to be resilient, creative. And remember, at the end of the day, we are the drivers of this pandemic. This virus doesn't have wings. It doesn't have feet. It gets from point A to point B because we've made a decision to be in a room or in a space with other people without a mask on or for a longer period of time than we should. Poor ventilation. We've done things that we don't need to do. We don't have to do it. We've got to just be patient, a little bit more disciplined, give it some time. Remember that if we put in the work now, it'll end a lot sooner. The longer we wait, the longer we resist, the harder it's going to be on every front. There's no reason for that to happen. We've seen what we can do. History can repeat itself in a good way or a bad way, but it's up to every single one of us. Look in the mirror every morning and ask yourself what you're doing about it. Awesome. I appreciate your time. I hope uh, you and your team are safe and well. Thanks for all you're doing and uh, take care. Thanks, Trent. Stay safe. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, so that's it. There it is. The good doctor laying it down, letting us know what's up. Um, I hope you got something out of that. I hope it may have answered some questions for you. Um, I don't know, man. The way I've been looking at all this stuff is that, you know, we're in an era where everyone's challenging what they're hearing out there. Everyone has their own truth. And I don't know, man, we got to believe in something. And I felt like somebody who's in that world every single day who has, you know, studied this kind of stuff their entire lives. I'm like, that's, that's someone I'm going to, I'm going to believe, you know, and I, uh, 
it, it was really beneficial for me to have that conversation and I hope it was, it was good for you to, to listen to. Um, anyway, that's it for this week's episode of TGP. Thank you so much again to everybody for the support and the emails and comments and sharing the episodes. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review if you can, wherever you are, it helps get the podcasts up in the world and let more folks know about it. Um, we're also delighted to be joining uh, Comedy Here Often Podcast Network, which is going to be uh, it's a branch of 604 Records. And myself and a bunch of other podcasters that I know have been asked to join and uh, kind of be part of that that team. And uh, really, really excited, man. There are not a lot of uh, champions of comedians in Canada in our content. And I feel like uh, Comedy Here Often has is, is really stepped up and wanted to be one of those one of those players. So we're, we're really excited to get things going. I think we kick things off November 18th um, with the big launch and uh, yeah, man, excited to just have more ears on this podcast and more eyeballs on it and uh, continue to have lots of great guests and great conversations. So stay, stay tuned. And thanks so much for your support up to this point. Again, I have been Trent McClellan and this has been the generators podcast. Have a fantastic week. Uh, I hope it's great for you. I hope everything works out. And if it doesn't work out, remember, you're going to be okay. You're going to get through it. All right. All the best. We'll see you next week on TGP. TGP.